Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What's your relationship to math? It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> Should I say it's complicated? I've set my relationship as complicated. Oh, I don't, I don't know. No. I just feel like it's one of these things that folks have strong opinions on. Just when you say the word yeah. math, like they get a visceral reaction in some way, shape, or form. Oh, so I don't. I'm actually, I think, without tooting my own horn, Choo-choo. I think I'm pretty good at maths. But um, but the one thing that I will never do is math in public. What, what do you mean by that? So, um, like, if you're in a meeting and somebody's trying to do some, uh, like, spur of the moment math, oh. and they just call it out, I'll, I'll, I'll never do it. I'll even out loud say, I'm not doing that. Someone else has to do that. <laughs> or, like... When you're at a restaurant and it comes, the check comes around, and maybe oh. you're going to split the check, or you're going to like, yeah. If we're not just splitting it right down the middle, I will. I refuse to partake in that. Just tell me how much I owe. Do you? Uh, yeah. Are you? Can you calculate tip like on a fly? I'm pretty good at that. So actually, um, my this is like a way to do math. I know, but. Um, I know it from my dad. So I associate it with my dad. Like when you like divide the numbers up. So if it's 15 and you have to figure out what a percentage of $15 is, you do the percentage like 10 of 10 and, and then you do the percentage of five and then you put it together. Right. So um, I'm okay. I'm good at that, but not if I have to do it out loud or for like, I'm fine if I'm by myself. Do you know anything about, paying attention to me. do you know anything about new math? Your is your daughter's not old enough yet to be doing math. Is she? I have no idea how education no, works these kindergarten. days. And I don't think so. She she doesn't like numbers anyway. She likes letters. <laughs> I should ask her. We try to her talk to her about numbers, and she's like, "I don't have time for this." <laughs> What's new math? Well, it's a different way of doing math. I don't know actually. So that's a thing. I'm. I have. A, you and I are around like the same age. We probably came up and did math the same way. I just see these memes on the internet, yeah. and it's like. The, this double-digit number times this double-digit number, and what goes through your head? And I was like, oh, you go down and you carry the two and all of that. Right. And then new math, I don't know, but they separate things out and they block it and it has like geometry involved. This is, none of this is probably true. We're going to get geometry. people commenting on it. But yeah, I um, that's okay. I can do math. I don't like necessarily doing math in public. I'm with you. Um, <laughs> so I guess I have a going back, bringing it back around. It's complicated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So contrary to a popular belief, or maybe just your belief and how I think you think of me, I think you think I think of you. Uh, Anyways, I wasn't asking (laughs) about (laughs) math. To make anyone feel bad, um, publicly or not. No, I. I feel like you're. Well, anyway, I won't go down the road of when you try to make me feel bad. Oh, no. But <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, in some ways, in my life, math is like is like art. It's like everybody's an artist. I'm okay at math. You just have to believe in yourself. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah math is part of everyone's lives. And, yeah. and we are, so we are talking math, not just to uh, boost our own self-esteem, maybe, uh, but because, of course, it is an aspect of our next series, specifically climate and math. And Vicky, uh-huh. I, I, I have a special surprise for you. 
You have a surprise? Are you leaving? I do. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, goodness. You, you said that with such like, not even just such relish, just so quickly. That was the first thing you thought well, of. Was, uh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Mind. Go on. You can't get rid of me that easily. Uh, but we do have a special guest coming in. The co-host of the podcast, Carrie the Two. And we'll be collaborating with folks uh, for the next series that we're calling Solving for Climate. So let me introduce Sadie Witkowski. Hi, Shane. So Sadie, do you want to give us an idea of who you are, what you do, kind of what we'll be doing together? Yeah, absolutely. So probably the first time your listeners are hearing from me, I am actually the Director of Communications and Engagement for a mouthful of an institute name myself. We call it MC, but it is the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation. And we're located at UChicago, and we have our own podcast here called Carry the Two, which focuses fully on the mathematical and statistical uh, gears that turn the world that maybe people don't realize and trying to get people interested in the math and stats that runs everything. Yeah, and I love this idea. I know we, we've been talking for the past few months about this, but uh, Carry the Two and Third Pod, I think, are really good complements of one another. Y'all are focused more on the math side of things, us on the more geoscience, but really trying to uh, bring everyone to science and math, kind of break down these barriers, uh, instill trust in these processes. And so in the coming weeks, uh, we'll be releasing episodes on our feed on Friday. And then I said, Really encourage folks to head over to Carry the Two on the following Tuesday for a complimentary episode that digs deeper into the kind of mathy side of things. Mathy. So, Shane, you're a professional communicator. Mathy is not a word. I feel like you've been making up a lot of words lately. Yeah, come on. It's not even a good pun. Like, you're not integrating the different pieces of knowledge that you've learned as a science communicator. Oh, oh, I like you, Sadie. Stop. So, no. okay. <laughs> Are you sure you can't be my new co-host? Stop. All right. <laughs> no new co-hosts. Uh, <laughs> but we do have a preview of our new series for everyone. So please stick around for a sneak peek or I guess sneak listen. Uh, and then join us and carry the two every week for stories about math and climate. My name is Maike Zonnewald, and I'm an Associate Research Scholar at Princeton University. What you're doing in a model, or in these types of models, um, is that you're representing many parts of the Earth system. So the ocean, for example, and the atmosphere, and land, and biology on land and in the ocean, not to mention, you know, chemistry and, and, and the cryosphere, so ice. And this is all very, very complicated. They all talk to each other, like I mentioned, the ocean talks to the atmosphere. And making sure all of this works, one of the challenges is that you have to do what's called discretization. And that effectively means that you have to, if you're taking the ocean, for example, if you can imagine a globe, what you have to do is sort of chop it up into little bits. So you can think of it as if you have a photograph of a face, what you have to do is you have to pixelate it because numerically, it's just kind of what you have to do to solve these equations. And that in itself is, is a challenge because you can't see everything. So you can imagine that if you take my face and pixelate it, if you only have five pixels to work with, you wouldn't really be able to see that 
I'm wearing glasses, for example. But if you were to use, I don't know, 500 or 5,000 pixels, you could start to see details like I have freckles. And those types of things are very similar to what's hap happening in the ocean, apart from the fact that in the ocean, unfortunately, all of the things matter. So all the things you can't see matter a lot because of the way the, the equations work. Jane Baldwin, I'm an assistant professor of Earth System Science at University of California, Irvine. I think you're unpacking really well that quote from your Twitter that all models are wrong, but they <laughs> still have utility. Because what I'm hearing is that for you to model cyclones, you have to model all these elements of cyclones, the wind, the precipitation, the storm surge. And then on the other part of that is to model what those do on the ground. You have to model a whole set of vulnerabilities. We're kind of trying to one at a time add in these different hazards and hopefully at some point we'll come together and we can model them all at the same time. The like grand vision is that down the line we can have a risk model that can account for these different hazards. We're not there yet, but it means there's good science still be done, I guess. But I've talked to some people who have sort of said, well, you know, the reality is if you try to model too many things, the problem just becomes too complicated and you know, it might be more productive to sort of stay in your lane and like focus on the hazard and do as much as you can with the hazard. But I think in the context of the fact that the climate is already changing, that people are trying to figure out how we adapt to it, we need to make some kind of effort to like kind of cut across these disciplines so we can actually be modeling the impacts in a rigorous way and not just the hazard. Because what, like a community on the ground, they can't do that much with just knowing how wind is going to increase into the future. They need to know more about the vulnerability and exposure as well. Christy Ebi, Professor, Center for Health and the Global Environment, University of Washington. When you look at the Funding on adaptation under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, less than half of 1% of all of their funding has gone to health. So at the moment, health is in a situation where people are suffering and dying from climate change. And at the same time, the sector doesn't have the human and financial resources to start taking action. Part of the taking action is it's incredibly rare for anybody in health to take any kind of courses in meteorology, courses in climate change. And so very, very few people in departments and ministries of health really understand weather, climate, and climate change. And so it's been outside of their remit. It's been outside of what they think about. The good news is things are changing rapidly. Schools of public health now understand how critical understanding our changing climate is. And they're all starting programs, they're all starting courses on climate change and health. There's been several calls for proposals from the National Institutes of Health this year and starting last year, which is very exciting. So if we were to talk a couple of years from now, I think the answers would be a lot different. 
because we would have the investment in the research and, importantly, the investment in the interventions and start seeing that we are having communities more resilient to the health risks of a changing climate. I'm Matthew Huber. I'm a professor in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department at Purdue University. I'm also director of the Institute for Sustainable Future. We have just about released enough CO2 that we're going to kick out of those oscillations. So we've just experienced our last interglacial, and we're moving rather rapidly to the state that the climate system was like um, between three and uh, 15 million years ago. And during that period, there was no Greenland ice sheet. Sea level was substantially higher, tens of meters higher. And the climate was between three and seven degrees C warmer than it is today. So we've already added enough CO2 that unless we stop immediately, you can forget that whole glacial interglacial thing. Not going to happen again. We're punching through to a different climate state. And the Earth system has been in that state before. Um, it's not like, oh, we go to Venus or, you know, like, no, we, we've been through this. It hasn't been recent. <laughs> it's been a long time. I'm not saying it's, a, you know, like, oh, we've done this before. It's no biggie. No, it's, it's very big. We haven't done it in three million years. So it is, as far as most of what's around today, this will be pretty new. And so that's why this issue of transitions is so important, is if the change is gradual, then you can imagine evolution keeping up. You can imagine ecosystems keeping up. They've been through this before. It was a long time ago. But if you move slowly enough, maybe it's okay. And the kind of really sophisticated models that we use, they, they kind of have changes at a certain rate. It's pretty rapid, certainly compared to you know, what we think uh, has happened in some periods of time before. But if you do believe the simple models, and you do believe the paleoclimate records during the most abrupt transitions, then the climate models, even though they aren't that slow, may be still too slow. It's possible that transitions, when they happen, happen even more abruptly than what our sophisticated climate models suggest. My name is Dan Cooley. I am a professor in the Department of Statistics at Colorado State University. If we think of climate as a distribution, um, we can talk about climate, current climate. We can talk about past climate or reference climate. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to compare differences of the distribution. Now, when we're talking about extremes, we're talking about the tails of those distributions. And so the, the information we have to, to describe the tail in, uh, in both of these situations, current climate and, and, and your reference climate, we don't have a lot of information. We, we, as I said, we, we throw away 95% of the data. And so there's uncertainty associated with the tails in both of those distributions. And so trying to attribute a, an individual event, if you look at, at, a, at a flood event, a, a, an event like we saw in 2013 in, in Boulder, the, um, 
the, the question you're trying to ask is how what is the probability of observing an event greater than what we observed? And how has that changed under current climate than to previous climate? So there's, uh, anytime we're talking about an extreme event, there's a lot of uncertainty associated with it. And so trying to compare those probabilities, um, sometimes you don't get a, um, sometimes there's an indication of change in the, in the point estimates, but the uncertainty associated with both of those estimates is such that if you were to, to perform a, a hypothesis test like where we do in, in introductory statistics courses, um, you, could, you couldn't conclude that there's sufficient evidence to um, reject an old hypothesis that there is no change. I'm Angel Hsu. I'm an assistant professor of public policy and the environment at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The urban heat island effect, or UHI for short, is the phenomenon by which cities are warmer than their rural surroundings. And so when we measure it, when we come up with a metric for the UHI, it's the temperature difference between urban and rural areas. And it's typically measured at night. And so obviously during the day, it's gonna be hotter. But what we're really concerned about is the fact that urban areas, they tend to have large amounts of impervious surfaces like concrete, asphalt, and these materials can absorb and retain heat. And so this is particularly relevant at night when the sun is down and these materials, these urban structures, they can keep on and hold on to that heat and affect human health. And so what we found is that in 97% of these cities, people of color were being exposed to higher levels of urban heat and temperatures than their white counterparts. And then if you looked at income, we also found similar patterns. So people who are living below the poverty line and people who are living above the poverty line were also facing different exposure to urban heat and also temperatures. And so people, and the patterns were actually really similar. So in 95 and 94% of cities across America, we found that people living below poverty were exposed to higher levels of urban heat than wealthier counterparts. Who knew math could be so interesting? I mean, hi, me. I, I knew this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the math nerd. Zing. It's me. <laughs> oh. Uh-oh. Zing. I like it. I like you. I want you to stay around forever. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Vicky, I know you do. And while I am still here, it's still me. Hi, it's me. Oh. I'm probably the problem, but I'm still here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh I am excited. We are excited to get to work with you, Sadie, uh, for this next series over the next six weeks. And so with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Sadie for collaborating with us and to you, Shane, for producing the podcast. Big thanks to our numerous producers for this series, to Colin Warren for audio engineering and to Karen Romano-Young for the artwork for this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please rate and review us, and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week, and then the week after that. And then the week after that. All right. Um, oh, Vicky, I'm... See, again, I'm making the assumption... Vicky, what is your relation to math? You have a positive or negative relationship to math? 
Um, I don't do public math. That's probably where I'll take that. Okay, so that's that. This I'm not bad at math, but if somebody's looking at me, I can't do math. No, this is actually good because I I need to know that yeah. coming out of this. Um, a Schrodinger's yeah. box of math. It happens, but not when you're looking. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like in meetings, somebody will say, "Oh, you know, okay, so that makes means we need this many blah blah blah," and I'm like, "Not me. Not doing it. Somebody else has to do it. I'm not doing that math." I. That's I don't do public math. I love that. Okay. 